Dr. Robert Zubrin will share recent changes to the commercial space industry and will reflect on how these changes affect human exploration of our solar system and beyond on Thursday, September the 19th, 2019 at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center's National Geographic Theater located near the Davidson Center for Space Exploration. This will be part of the Pass the Torch lecture in conjunction with Beer Garden. Beer Garden runs from 4.30 to 7.30 with book signings by Dr. Zubrin beginning at 5.30 to 6 p.m. His lecture will begin at 6 and then another book signing session after the lecture roughly between 7 and 7.30. This is a preview of Dr. Zubrin's discussion on his Mars Direct, recorded almost 25 years ago. This is being presented as a prelude to a more recent interview with Dr. Zubrin concerning his new book, The Case for Space. This is Michelle. You are listening to The Bear, the College of Business Radio at Athens State University. Hello, I'm Wayne McCain, and this is Tech Talk. Tech Talk looks at current technology-oriented issues and information which impacts the Tennessee Valley area. Stay with us. Tech Talk's featured topic is next. Here's Wayne McCain. In July 1989, on the 20th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing, President Bush called for America to renew its pioneering push into space with the establishment of a permanent lunar base and a series of human missions to Mars. While some have said that such an endeavor would be excessively costly and take many decades, a small team at Martin Marietta has drawn up a daring plan that could sharply cut costs and send a group of American astronauts to the Red Planet by the end of the present decade. The plan, known as Mars Direct, has attracted international attention and broad controversy. Its principal author, Dr. Robert Zubrin, has presented the idea to such fora as the International Astronautical Federation Congress in Germany and the Blue Ribbon Synthesis Group headed by former Apollo astronaut General Thomas Stafford. Here is the interview with Dr. Zubrin from Denver. Dr. Zubrin, why should the human race be concerned with going to Mars? There's a number of reasons. The first, the more immediate ones, are scientific ones, in that, in that the exploration of Mars which I believe can only be uh, fully done with uh, human beings on the scene, can potentially tell us an enormous amount about uh, our place in the universe. That is to say, the possibility is very real that there could have once been life on Mars. The conditions uh, in the distant past were appropriate for it. Mars was similar to the Earth uh, for about the first billion years of its existence. That is to say, it was warm and wet. And if the theory is true that life evolves uh, wherever physical and chemical conditions are, are appropriate, then life should have evolved on Mars, and we should be able to find fossils of past life, if not existing present life, on Mars. And if we were to do that, that would prove that uh, life is a general phenomenon throughout the universe. On the other hand, if we were to thoroughly explore Mars and find out, yes, it was a warm and wet planet for a long period of time, there's no evidence that life ever evolved here. Uh, then that would tell us something uh, very different about the development of life, and it could mean that we're completely unique. And, and either way, I think that the answer is really worth knowing. Now, beyond that, there is another point, which is that if Mars was once suitable for life, it is possible that it could be made so again. That is, all the things that life needs exist on Mars, water, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, all the important chemical elements. Human beings with our technology could potentially go to Mars and make it 
a new home for uh, humanity and a, a new place for human civilization to live and grow and a new frontier. People that are alive today who have an opportunity to be the, the first pioneers of this are, are, are lucky beyond estimation if they take advantage of that. Right. It's kind of hard to put a price tag on human adventure and uh, evolution, isn't it? Uh, describe for our radio audience, if you could, the concepts involved in the Mars Direct proposal. Well, what we wanted to do was design a, a piloted Mars mission that, that could be done with near-term technology and at, at fairly low cost. So we decided that we would do it without tr trying to build gigantic spaceships in orbit around the Earth. Rather, we, we do it with two launches of a heavy lift launch vehicle in the Saturn V class. And one launch, first launch, sends out an unmanned payload of about 40 tons to Mars, which cruises on out to Mars, aero captures at Mars, and then is landed on Mars with the help of a parachute, much like we did in the Viking program. Now, what that unmanned payload is, it's an Earth return vehicle, the relatively small crew cabin, and a crew of four is going to have to live in that small cabin for six months during a return trip. But nobody's in it now. But it also lands with about six tons of uh, liquid hydrogen stored in some of its propellant tanks, and it has a small nuclear reactor worth about 100 kilowatts and a very small chemical processing plant. Now, once that thing is landed on Mars, we turn the reactor on and we run a pump and we suck in Martian air. And uh, the Martian air is carbon dioxide gas, and, and we know that for a fact because of the Viking landers that we operated on Mars for four and six years at two different sites. And CO2, carbon dioxide, can be made to react with hydrogen very easily with the help of a nickel catalyst. And what they'll produce is methane and water. Now, methane, same as natural gas, is a good rocket fuel, and we'll put that in our tanks and use that as fuel. And the water that comes off will electrolyze into hydrogen and oxygen. And the uh, oxygen that comes off will liquefy. That'll be our oxidizer to burn the methane with. And the hydrogen that comes off will recycle to react with more CO2 to make more methane and water. So you run a cycle this way, very simple cycle between a methanation reactor and an electrolysis reactor. And between the two of them, if you do everything right, you can end up turning six tons of hydrogen that you brought from Earth into 108 tons of methane oxygen on the surface of Mars. It's a leverage of 18 to 1. Kind of like the leverage of a pioneer exploring the wilderness, not bringing his food with him, but bringing a, a bullet and some gunpowder and acquiring the useful mass of a deer or a caribou for the sake of the transported mass of a bullet and cartridge so they can live off the land. Anyway, so this thing is fueled up on the surface of Mars with 95% of its fuel coming from Mars. And then after that's done, and actually it'll be two years after it was launched, we'd launch the second vehicle out to Mars. And that would have a crew of four astronauts in it. And they go and they land at the site where the Earth return vehicle is waiting for them. And they'll explore the whole region around that site using combustion-powered ground vehicles because we have lots of extra methane oxygen uh, fuel left over from the production process that we can use to power combustion-powered rovers, which will give us a lot more mobility than you can get with a battery-powered vehicle. And they'll probably fly out in convoy with another one of these unmanned Earth return vehicle deals. And that second Earth return vehicle will be their backup, but if they don't need it, we can land it somewhere else. And it can start making propellant, which it will use to support the second piloted expedition, which will fly to that site, along with another Earth return vehicle, which is their backup, but which, if they don't need it, opens up site number three, and so on. So the idea is every two years you're launching two boosters off the Cape, one to open up a new site, the other to open up the previous site. That's two boosters every two years is an average of one per year to support a continuing program of human exploration of Mars. And, you know, 
I think that would certainly be affordable. If we were to be able to launch these boosters at about the same rate we can launch shuttles, uh, which is about eight a year, means that we'd only need to use up on the average 12% of our total launch capability to support the human exploration of Mars. So we could do lots of other things at the same time, too. We could explore the moon, the asteroids, build space stations, any number of things that you might want to do. What are the differences, really, between Mars Direct and some of the other proposed scenarios for exploring Mars? Okay, well, one I've already mentioned. We don't have any on-orbit assembly of gigantic spaceships. We do the mission with a simple lift-and-throw strategy, throwing the payloads, one manned, one unmanned, directly to the planet. Basically, we're doing it in a scaled-up way of the same way we've flown every real interplanetary mission to date, with the upper stage of a booster, instead of trying to go to orbit and rendezvousing on orbit with an orbiting space station, which is acting as the hangar for an or a, uh, a dedicated space transfer vehicle that lives and is serviced and is refueled in space. Now, as we're kind of taking the Mars mission out of this realm of the future and putting it more in the realm of what we're able to do now. Now, the reason why we're able to do it this way, though, is because we're invoking something else. That is, we're getting our return propellant from Mars. Now, to some people, that may seem like a stretch. But in fact, no significant exploration of the Earth has ever been done successfully except by taking advantage of the resources that are available in the environment that you intend to explore. And so that's how we're going to make it work for Mars. It, you know, if Lewis and Clark had tried to bring the baggage trains that they would have needed to cross the American continent with all their food coming from the East Coast, they never would have made it. The reason why a lot of the mission plans to Mars that have been advanced are so huge and costly is because they take um, the approach of bringing everything from Earth. I, I don't think you can do it that way. I think uh, if you want to do it in a cost-effective way, you've got to be able to live off the land. And uh, that's how we go about doing it making use of existing and near-term technologies. Exactly which technologies would the mission be able to draw on? Well, first of all, we would use the existing uh, chemical rocket technology. would, you know, either need a, a Saturn V or its equivalent, which you could make out of shuttle technology with a shuttle uh, external tank acting as the core of the vehicle and four shuttle main engines and two solids and a big hydrogen-oxygen upper stage. So this is the kind of rocket that uh, NASA has built in the past, uh, for instance, Saturn V, or the sort of thing I'm talking about, and it's all present technology, and, uh, and we could do it again. We would have to use uh, some of the uh, life support systems that have been developed for the space station. We'd use them in the HABs on the way to Mars, and so forth. The uh, return vehicle uses a methane-oxygen uh, engine, and there is no space-rated methane-oxygen engine in service right now, but... The RL-10 engine, which uses hydrogen and oxygen, has been run with methane and oxygen on the test stands, and modifications to that could be made that would make that work. We need to use uh, AeroShield. Now, we, um, we used AeroShields to enter Mars orbit, uh, to enter and land on Mars from a very high Mars orbit. On Viking, in the Mars Direct mission, we'd actually use the AeroShield first to uh, capture into Mars orbit, and then we'd use it to enter and land. So it, it'll take a little modification of that technology, and the scale is somewhat bigger, but um, we'd be building on the Viking heritage there. And then finally, the thing in, in Mars Direct that in, is in a way seems really new is actually the oldest technology at all, which is to say the chemical engineering technology. The methanation reactor that I'm describing has been in service in the chemical industry on Earth since the 1890s, and so is water electrolysis. So that the thing about the mission that seems the newest is actually the oldest and uh, probably the cheapest. Right. Well, it's certainly hard to uh, 
argue with that uh, type of technology with that much uh, history here on Earth. You've uh, described somewhat the vehicle. What what will it look like, uh, Dr. Zubrin? How many crew members could you take, and uh, how long would the journey take? Okay, well, our current design has a crew of four. Some people have pointed out that a crew of six would be more desirable, uh, and that may be true. However, with the kind of mass you could throw with a vehicle in the Saturn V class, uh, our calculations indicate that four is all you could take, so we'll do it with four. And you can do a pretty good Mars mission that way. What, what would the vehicles themselves resemble? Well, there's a number of different ways you could design them. There's actually a fair amount of design freedom here. I'll tell you just what our current point designs look like, although uh, major changes from this would certainly be possible. In our current design, the, the Earth return vehicle is a small cabin about um, 15 feet in diameter and 16 feet tall, so it has two decks each with eight feet of headroom and it has a conical top. It actually resembles the kind of... Uh, I don't know, people may have seen pictures of the uh, single-stage-to-orbit vehicle, the uh, same general sort of shape, and it would come in aero-enter and then have a fair amount of control, be able to guide itself to a recovery area, then it would pop a chute and be uh, picked up probably out of the ocean, although a land landing is, is possible there. Our habitat for the crew that they fly out to Mars in and land on Mars in is shaped like a giant tuna can. It's about 27 feet in diameter, so we could use the tooling that we have in the shoe plant in Louisiana where they make the shuttle external tank to make it. And it's about 16 feet tall in terms of its useful area. So once again, two decks, each with eight feet of headroom. And the upper deck of the HAB is laid out as dedicated habitation space with four staterooms, one for each of the crew, a number of public areas for science and for a galley and so on. And then at the very center is a heavily shielded area, which is our solar flare storm shelter for the crew to go in. If there's a solar flare, they're protected there until it's over. And then the lower deck of the HAB is more of a garage workshop kind of area. And in that lower deck, the crew flies out to Mars. They have in there a pressurized ground rolling vehicle about the size of a 4x4. It runs on a methane oxygen combustion engine, and it has a one-way driving range of 600 miles so that even if the crew landed way off course from the designated landing site, they could still make it to the Earth return vehicle by driving there. Well, now, how long does the journey take? Well, we would send the cargo flight, the unmanned flights out, on absolute minimum energy trajectories, and they would take eight months to reach Mars. The piloted flights, we'd send out a bit faster. they take six months uh, to reach Mars. And then the crew was on the surface of Mars for a year and a half, and they would spend that time getting some exploration done. And you need a lot of time if you want to do serious exploration. You know, I live here in Colorado where we have a lot of dinosaur fossils. You know, frankly, I, I've never found one, and professional paleontologists that come here to look for them take a number of years before they make a significant find. Right. And the same is going to be true on Mars. You're not going to just walk outside the hab and make a discovery. You're going to need to do some looking around. And so we're going to be on the surface a year and a half, and then at the end of that time, the crew gets in the Earth return vehicle, and they take off direct to Earth, and it takes six months to come home. One of the things that we're all interested in, uh, we hear it uh, from the administration, is uh, contributing to the stimulation of our economy and sustaining the high-tech and aerospace industry. How do you think the Mars Direct program might contribute to that? Well, I think it would contribute a lot to that. I mean, this is something that people really have got to think about. I mean, we in this country have spent, since World War II, over a trillion dollars, literally a trillion dollars, uh, in developing a uh, defense scientific capability which is unparalleled in, in the history of, of humanity. 
we, we built this thing up at enormous expense, and right now it's just sort of being let go. We, we've taken this sword that we spent a lot of money on, and we're throwing it out in the field to rust. By taking it instead and beating it into a plowshare, first of all, you're getting some more use out of it, and second of all, you're preserving the steel. And I think that's very important to think about, because if we let our um, defense scientific aerospace capability go down the drain, it's going to cost us an enormous amount to rebuild it. And then finally, I think that there's a unique opportunity here, precisely because we have developed this capability, the sort of capability you need if you want to do a Mars mission, that we've got all these people with incredible skills and talents who are available now for a peacetime pursuit. I think nothing could be done with them that's better than, than to do this. Exactly. Could the Mars Direct project be accomplished as a privately funded program, or maybe could a swell in public support uh, really help make it happen? Well, I'd like to believe it could be done privately, but I can't figure out how to do it that way. Uh, as far as I can see, the initial exploration of Mars, because of uh, all the risk and cost that will have to be done before uh, you know, exploration results in, in profit, it will have to be borne by the government. So, yes, what we need is a swell of public support. Now, I think the support's out there. I've talked about this plan to all sorts of groups of people, not just aerospace audiences who you'd expect to be for it because they'll get business out of it, but every kind of person, a Rotary Club, Boy Scouts, Plumbers Conventions, etc., and I found uniformly, every kind of audience I talk to, people come up to me afterwards and say, this is the sort of thing this country ought to be doing. People remember Apollo, and, and they don't quite understand why we're not doing that sort of thing anymore. They feel almost swindled. What happened? How come the, the outward push stopped? You know, uh, this is America. We ought to be able to do this sort of thing. And uh, I think that there's a, a little bit of a disconnect between the, the sediments that the uh, public has and those that... A lot of the politicians in, in Washington believe that the, the uh, public has, who believe that the public is, is skeptical of this sort of expenditure, because I think that there is tremendous enthusiasm for this in the context, I mean, even the NASA budget, we're talking about 15%. In the context of the federal budget, it's a drop in the bucket, and they'd be really getting something out of it. They'd be preserving the national defense. They'd be inspiring their children to go and learn science and mathematics and, and make something out of their minds. And I think that people put, put no higher value on anything in their lives than the, um, the progress and success of their children. And this would help a lot to that, and people know that. I think we need to uh, have some public support shown. I know the National Space Society is circulating a petition in support of the human exploration of the moon and Mars. And, you know, people need to call their congressmen. People need to write letters to the editor newspapers, uh, et cetera. Well, basically that, that the space program, and in particular the human exploration of the moon and Mars is really something people ought to be doing. No program of exploration of a new region on Earth has ever paid off less than a thousand to one. And it's almost always been the case that before the program, people thought it couldn't pay off at all. And I can't say how the human exploration of Mars is ultimately going to pay off. It'll, if, it, it will probably pay off in a way that, that no one alive today has, can even imagine and, and, and could guess what it was going to be. In supporting a program like this, we're not just supporting a, a few jobs for ourselves. We're, we're supporting a, a major part of the human future. Dr. Robert Zubrin, a senior engineer at Martin Marietta Astronautics in Denver.
Talk is a public affairs presentation. I'm Wayne McCain, your host.